be something. I'm going to take a break from uh, Romans for a few weeks because I'm taking a break uh, for a few weeks. And I'm going to be uh, on vacation for the next uh, couple of weeks. And uh, Pastor Vince is going to fill the pulpit, say all the things that I want to, but don't have the courage to say. So <laughs> I am going to be gone for a couple of weeks and I'll be back for Mother's Day. So um, not wanting to break up the remainder of Romans chapter 11, because once I get started into the whole section about all Israel being saved, I don't want to break the continuity of that. I want to follow that argument uh, all the way through to the end as it rolls right into that great doxology at the end of Romans 11. So knowing that I was going to be out and knowing that Mother's Day was uh, coming when, as soon as I get back, I uh, decided this morning not to return to Romans 11, but instead to uh, to take a look at something that's been kind of hanging on my heart for a while. And uh, this just seems like a good time to, to talk about it. You know, the Christian life is, uh, is a constant learning and growing experience. But from uh, time to time in our Christian life, we uh, learn a lesson so significant that it completely changes the way we see the world. Twenty-three years ago, our family experienced one of those mega changes. We had uh, recently moved to Dallas, Texas, and we had uh, begun attending a really fine church there. The preaching was great, and, and uh, we just really enjoyed our time there on Sundays. But our problem was is that we were very, very lonely. We had moved more than halfway across the country, and and arrived there, and, and uh, we just were having trouble making friends. Church itself was friendly enough on Sunday morning. People would, would speak to us and so forth, but we just couldn't seem to connect beyond the Sunday morning. And so there we were, 2,500 miles from home and uh, pretty lonely. And as we uh, talked about that as a family, we, uh, we noted that nobody was inviting us into their homes. And we just thought, well, that, you know, until somebody does that, there's just no way we're going to really begin to, to, to uh, meet people and get involved in the fellowship itself. And uh, one day, uh, Carol was, um, was talking to the uh, pastor's wife, and uh, she asked Carol if, you know, we had, were finding our way into the church, or had we gotten plugged in yet? And Carol had to confess that, no, we hadn't. And the fact of the matter is that we felt kind of disconnected and and uh, Carol observed her that nobody in the whole church had invited us into their home. And then the pastor's wife's response really revolutionized our life. Rather than apologizing for the uh, church members or rather making, than making excuses uh, for them as to why, uh, you know, they're busy and so forth and they just haven't had a chance yet to invite you into their home, she uh, responded this way. She said to Carol, how many people have you invited into your home? <laughs> and we were stunned. You mean it's our responsibility to take the first step? Yep. Yeah, it's your responsibility. And uh, deciding to act upon that counsel, we did that. And we began to invite families into our home that... We thought we'd like to get to know, and, and uh, so that process began, and it, it wasn't very long at all until we were intimately involved in the fellowship, and it became, a, you know, a really place where our heart was, and, and five years later when we um, moved here to Southern California, it was a really painful process of leaving a fellowship in which our heart had become so entwined with all the members that were there, and we took that lesson with us. I told you it was a mega change. When we came here to Southern California, we decided we were not going to wait for people from the new church here to invite us into their home. We just began, and I think it was, we hadn't been going a month before we invited the whole young married Sunday school class to, to come, and uh, they all did, which was the amazing thing. And, uh, and so uh, it began a real intimate fellowship that has carried forward to this day amongst many of you. Our hearts are, um, are bound together, and it's, it's because of just uh, getting into one another's life. So open your Bibles to uh, 3 John. 
That's way back at the end of the, of the New Testament. Okay, Third John. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1223. Third John. We're not going to have time to, uh, to go through the whole letter, which I'm sure doesn't surprise you. We're just going to lift a few verses out of it this morning. But, but Third John is, uh, is one of those amazing pieces of uh, New Testament literature. It is a personal letter. A personal letter written to an unknown individual by the name of Gaius. And this letter, along with uh, Philemon, are the only two personal letters that appear for us in the entire New Testament. There are other letters written to individuals, certainly. Uh, pastoral epistles come to mind. But those were designed, they were written to individuals, but designed to be read in the public assembly. This letter here, 3 John, as they say, and Philemon, is not intended or was not intended originally to be written and shared in the public assembly in that way. It was private correspondence. The author of the letter here uh, simply identifies himself as the elder, the elder. And, and that is undoubtedly a reference not just to his age, although it's that, I'm sure, but it's primarily to his authority, to his authority. And Gaius, to whom he was writing, knew exactly who this elder was, who this man was. And so by just referring to himself as the elder and the authority that accompanied that, that was all that was sufficient for Gaius. Now, the ancient, ancient opinion uh, attests to this elder, this man, as being the Apostle John. So that's who we, we believe to have written this letter, the Apostle John, written from probably Ephesus sometime uh, around A.D. 90 to 95, so near the end of the first Christian century. And John is writing here this letter. The letter was most likely hand-carried by a man by the name of Demetrius. He would have carried the letter to Gaius. And it was intended, this letter was intended to encourage John's friend, Gaius, to stand up to this, uh, this self-appointed church dictator by the name of Diotrephes. That's the purpose of the letter. Evidently, John had sent out certain missionary teachers uh, to the area where this church is located here, probably in Asia Minor, and they had been refused hospitality by Diotrephes. He had turned them away. And, uh, but Gaius had extended hospitality to them. He had taken them into his home. And, and so upon their return, these missionaries reported both the problem and, the, and Gaius's uh, Christian response back to John himself and not only to John, but in front of the whole assembly. John commends him for Gaius for his hospitality in this letter here. And he also tells him that he intends to visit this church and to straighten things out. He is the apostle and he will come, at least that's his intention, and he's going to straighten things out with Diotrephes here. But in the meantime, he's writing back to Gaius and he's doing it to reinforce this most basic Christian duty of hospitality. He's writing to reinforce that, particularly in the face of Diotrephes' behavior, which is, according to verse 10 of this short letter, that he has threatened and probably even put, carried through putting people out of the assembly who were practicing hospitality to these itinerant missionaries. So there's a real problem going on here in the church, and John wants to confront that problem for us. Let me read for you the, uh, the text. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. And they bear witness to your love before the church. And you do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. 
Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. Neither does he himself receive the brethren and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our witness is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write uh, them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to you. The, the friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Very short, very simple, very personal correspondence here from the beloved Apostle John to someone whom he calls his child in the faith. Perhaps John himself led Gaius to the Lord. We don't know. But let's talk about this practice of hospitality. Hospitality. Hospitality has been and still is in many parts of the world a very highly valued practice. The word hospitality literally means the love of strangers. It means the love of strangers. And hospitality was exceedingly important in these early Christian centuries because of the scarcity of lodging and the lodging that was available had a reputation for immorality. And so these lodging establishments, such as they were, were just not a place for Christian people to to hold up. There was no local, you know, Motel 6 kind of thing where they leave the light on. So hospitality itself became a moral necessity among those who call themselves brothers and sisters in the family of God. It's really a family thing, hospitality. Well, here in America... The practice of hospitality has fallen on hard times. It's almost unheard of in many, many portions of our society. I think part of that problem is that we live a very frantic, a very self-absorbed lifestyle that, that conforms us to its mold and pushes us into this, this kind of spirit of individuality that pervades our culture and, I'm afraid, even the church of Jesus Christ. There is that certain independence, that certain individuality, that certain idea that, you know, I'll take care of myself. It's just, you know, it's me and God and I'll work this thing out. I don't need you and you don't need me. Kind of an attitude. But the Bible itself puts a very high value on this expression of Christian love. Hospitality is an expression of Christian love and the Bible puts an exceedingly high value on it. It urges it upon us as a necessary outgrowth of what it means to live a sanctified life. Hospitality is not an option for the follower of Jesus Christ, nor, and I'll just sort of um, eliminate this from your mind right now, it is not a spiritual gift to be practiced by a few. Okay? It is a moral necessity that is simply the outworking of a sanctified life. Let me just quickly run through a few verses with you just to demonstrate that point. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Don't even turn, just listen. Romans 12, 13. Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, practicing hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. First Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaints. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, speaking about widows and their enrollment on the, the benevolence listing of the church, whereby the church would undertake their material support. It says, let a widow be put on the list only if, and it lists a number of things, but one of them is she has shown hospitality to strangers, 1 Timothy 5.10. 
And then in 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8, it is spoken of as an absolute requirement for elders. A man is not qualified as an elder unless his life is characterized by hospitality. As I say, it's not a spiritual gift. It is a necessary outgrowth of what it means to live a sanctified Christian life. So this morning, I want to look with you at hospitality. And what I want to do is consider with you three compelling reasons to practice hospitality from this passage here. There are John, three compelling reasons to practice hospitality so that our obedience will grow in this vital area of the Christian life. the back of your bulletin, I've given you the outline of those three compelling reasons. First reason we must practice Christian hospitality is because it is praiseworthy. Christian hospitality is praiseworthy. Take a look at verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. John has been prompted by the report of returning missionaries back to the church where John is serving, been prompted by their report about Gaius and his hospitality that he has shown to those missionaries upon their return. By extending hospitality to those men, men that have come from John to that area, that is, they've been sent out by the apostle to preach the gospel, Gaius is demonstrating, according to John, verse 5 here, that he is a faithful man. You are acting faithfully, he says. He is a faithful man. Specifically, his faithfulness is being demonstrated in his loyalty both to John and to John's message. The extension of hospitality to the men sent by John demonstrates that Gaius is a faithful man, faithful to the Apostle John, and faithful to the message of that Apostle. And that message is referred to here in this very short letter as the truth. Six times the word truth appears in this very short little correspondence. Verse 1 says, whom I love in the truth. Verse 3 He says, I was glad when the brethren came and bore witness to your truth. Verse four, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Verse eight, therefore, we ought to support such men that they we may be fellow workers with the truth. Verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. So the truth is a big portion of this letter and the extension of hospitality to those who are bearers of the truth demonstrates that Gaius himself is a faithful adherent to the truth. His act of hospitality demonstrates his faithfulness, his loyalty to the truth. Now, what is the truth that goes all through this letter? Well, in a very simple way, the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we had the time, we'd look over at First John where that's in exactly what John says. He says, we have fellowship with God and you have fellowship with us and thus through us with God. That is through the truth. It is the gospel. Now, the gospel here is more than simply correct doctrine. It is also correct living. So the truth that's being talked about is not only orthodoxy, but orthopraxy. It is it is what we believe and consequently what we live according to what we believe. That is Gaius's loyalty. That is his faithfulness. That is the basis under which he is being commended by the Apostle John. Beloved, verse five again, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. Now, that clause is kind of indefinite. Whatever you accomplish here, and, and it's indefinite in terms of its completion, but not in, in terms of the reality that he's speaking about hospitality. He's just saying that whenever you, uh, you know, practice this hospitality, you are acting faithfully. He's not trying to nail it down to a certain particular event. He's just saying that it's the practice of hospitality itself that is that which is commendable. He goes on, he says, in whatever you accomplish there... That verb accomplish, ergese, is, is a, a, a verb that talks about hard work. 
translated here in the NASB as accomplish, but, but it's really a, a verb that talks about hard work. Beloved, you are acting faithfully. You're a faithful man whenever you work hard for the brethren. That would be an idiomatic translation for you. Whenever you work hard. The idea is, is that the extension of hospitality, the extension of ministry to strangers in this fashion is not something that is easy to do. It is indeed something that requires a lot of hard work. The missionaries, when they arrive, these gospel preachers, these itinerant preachers, as we'll see here, when, in, when they arrive, extending hospitality to them is not a simple thing. It is something that requires a lot of work. And I think anybody who has ever had long-term house guests can attest to the reality that it is a lot of work to have people living with you for an extended period of time. Beyond that, verse 5, these recipients of Gaius's hospitality, they're both brethren, that is that they are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but at the end of the verse you see they're also strangers. Strangers. That is that they were unknown initially to Gaius when they arrived. They were unknown to him. So this is not just entertainment. This is not just having a few friends over for dinner. Having a family member or a close associate or friend stay with you over the weekend. This is, this is talking about opening up and extending yourself out to someone who is completely unknown to you other than the fact that they are a brother or a sister in Jesus Christ. That is your common association with them. It is the family of God operating. And that just further enhances the idea of kindness, the act of kindness that Gaius has demonstrated here. He demonstrates it to strangers. It sort of beautifies, if you will, that which he has done. His home is open, not just to family and friends, but it's, it's open to strangers. People with whom his only point of contact is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is an expression of the unity of the body of Christ. And that's what makes it so beautiful, so wonderful, so praiseworthy. It represents a faithfulness, a, a loyalty to the truth, to the gospel itself. It requires a significant amount of hard work, and it is a beautiful act in that it is extended to strangers beyond just simply friends and family. These are the things that make it praiseworthy. Beyond that, verse 6, And they bear witness to your love before the church. And you, do, and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Paul says that the extension of hospitality, in this case he's referring to the prior acts of hospitality, bear witness of Gaius' love. They bear witness of his love. By, by opening his heart and opening his home to these traveling preachers, Paul, or, uh, John says that Gaius is demonstrating his love. His love, and it's really his love for Jesus Christ that is being demonstrated here. It is his love for Jesus Christ. And you know, this just really comports well with, with John's definition of love in, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, right? Love is not something we merely say. Love is something we, speak to me, we do, right? It is not mere vocalization or sentiment. Love, according to the Apostle John, is action. It is action. And so for Gaius, his, his love is effusive, his love is effective, it is Christian love, and it is a, it is a love that, that was poured out in such a way that it impressed these itinerant preachers such that when they returned back to their home church, they couldn't help but tell everybody about it. Hey, if you ever travel to so-and-so, such-and-such a place, there's this man, Gaius, he loves. He loves. He is a true brother in the faith. Doesn't matter if you've ever seen him or no. Just look this guy up. And he'll love you. He'll love you. Before the whole church, he says, right? Verse 6. They bear witness of your love before the whole church. John continues as he writes to Gaius here. He says, you will do well to send them on their way. You will do well. That's, a, that's an idiomatic phrase translated here. Or if we were going to translate it here idiomatically, it would just be simply please. 
Okay? It's just a, it's not a command, it's a request. He says, they bear witness, Gaius, of your love before the church. Please send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. This is John's appeal back to Gaius. As I say, these, uh, these missionaries, these itinerant preachers are coming back to the area again. So he's, he's just requesting to him, Gaius, please Please take care of them. They're planning to return. They're planning to minister in your area again. They're going to be in the same region. They're going to need to be supported again. I know that Diotrephes is putting pressure on you. I know that he's ruling the church with an iron fist. I know that he has threatened to put people out of the church and indeed has put people out of the church to extend hospitality to these itinerant preachers that come from me. But please, but please express your Christian love to them. Send them on their way, verse 6. Do you see it? Send them on, a way, on their way in a manner worthy of God. What did that mean in the first century, to send them on their way? Was that a be warmed, be filled, and be out of here kind of expression? No, it was far more than that, of course. What it meant was supplying them with food for their travels. While they stayed in your home, it would be to feed them. But when they... When they Proceed out from your home, it would be to make sure that they had adequate provision, adequate food to to, uh, sustain them on their journey. It would be to provide them with money to pay their expenses along the way, whatever those expenses might be. It would be to wash their clothes for them so that they had clean garments. And and if their garments needed to be mended, it would be to mend their garments for them or perhaps even purchase a garment for them if they would be in such need. It would be to help them on their travels to go as comfortably as possible. It might even mean providing an animal for them to travel with. There's a whole range of possibilities that it would mean here to send them on their way. Now, 3 John is kind of in juxtaposition to 2 John. And there in 2 John, he warns that that the church is to be very careful and they are, he cautions them against false teachers. Verse 10, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So while there it was important to remind the churches to be very, very careful about who they actually took in and who they helped upon their way, here he is saying to them, that it's important in, in uh, balancing this caution that you don't become stingy on the other side. That you're generous with the people that come with the gospel. You're not to treat them like a beggar. You shouldn't have to ask for everything. You should generously pour it out upon them, understanding that they are spokesmen for the truth. Send them on, a man, uh, on their way in a manner. And then notice the end of it there in verse 6. Worthy of God. Worthy of God. Don't treat them like a beggar. Don't bring discredit upon the name of Christ. The one to whom they are looking for their support. Send them on in their way in a manner worthy of God. That is, give them a generous response that would be worthy of God. That is, a God who has expressed His supreme generosity to you by giving who? His own Son. His own Son. If He did not hold back His best, His own Son from you, how could we hold back from those who are His spokesmen? This is a call to support missionary endeavor. This is what this is. It's a call to support missionary endeavor and to support it in a way that would receive God's approval, a way that would be considered worthy of God. That is a, a, with generosity because we serve a generous God. It's a lesson on Christian giving. It's a lesson on Christian giving. It's kind of wrapped up in here. You know, we, we uh, take an offering here on Sunday mornings and the person that comes up and, and prays for the offering frequently reminds us as a church that we are giving to God. We are giving to God when we take an offering. Now, we know that God doesn't have a checking account, right? God does not have a checking account. So what does it mean to say we're giving to God? 
Well, the idea is simply this. It's, it's that the staff and missionaries of Foothill Bible Church are in faith relying upon God to supply their needs. We are relying upon God to move in the hearts of his people in order to give, to provide for our family needs. And so when the collection plate passes, it's really just a mechanism. That's all the plate is. It doesn't have to be a plate. It could be a box at the back. It could be bags. It could be who knows. That's just simply a, a cultural mechanism by which the people of God respond to, as they're being encouraged here, the movement of God upon their hearts to provide generously for the people of God who carry the message of the truth throughout the world. Thus, when you do put something in the offering plate, you are, in a sense, giving to God. It's expensive to support families. It's an expensive thing to financially support whole families, both here and in the United States, or excuse me, overseas and here in the United States, is, a, is an expensive proposition. So let me say on behalf of the staff here and behalf of the of the staff overseas, the missionaries, I want to thank you for your generosity, for the movement of the Spirit of God in your heart to put into the offering plates on a very faithful and regular basis financially so that there is money to support those who are looking to God to move in your hearts to provide for our needs. Thank you for your generous stewardship. We must practice Christian hospitality because it's praiseworthy. It's praiseworthy. It represents a faithfulness to the gospel. It's not easy. It's hard work. It's an expression of Christian love and charity, and it's a costly endeavor. So it makes it praiseworthy. So it makes it praiseworthy. The second compelling reason we must practice Christian hospitality is because it's necessary. It's necessary. Verses 7 and the first part of verse 8. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men. Paul says the reason we are to practice hospitality, it begins there in verse 7, with the preposition for, okay, it provides the reason. The reason we are to do this is because they have left homes and families and farms and businesses in order to make Christ known. They went out for the sake of the name. Now, the name is a simply another way to refer to Christ. They went out for the sake of Christ. Back in uh, way back in Acts chapter five, it speaks about suffering for the name. They have been flogged, verse forty one, and so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. Philippians chapter two, verses nine to eleven. After speaking about the humiliation of Christ, it says, Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They went out for the sake of Christ. They went out for the sake of the name. They left everything behind. They left behind their careers. They left behind their homes. They left behind their farms. They left behind their businesses. In some cases, they left behind their families in order to go out for the sake of the name. That is, that they might make Christ known throughout the world. Now, lest we think this is only a Christian phenomena, this idea of, of wandering preachers, that's not true. In the first century, there were many wandering preachers and missionaries of pagan deities. It was a common phenomena. They would wander about in the ancient world, and for many of them, they would be begging for money as they went, or they would perform their religious services for a fee. Some things haven't changed all that much. 
But one historical account relates how a a certain religious huckster bragged about collecting 70 bags full of silver in the name of his deity. Paul condemns those who peddle the word of God for a fee over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And verse 17, he says, for we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul says, I won't take money. I won't take money because I don't want to be thought to be one of these religious hucksters who's going around and peddling his religion in order to make a profit. Back to third John, they went out for the sake of the name. And they would accept nothing from the Gentiles. You see that at the end of verse 7? They would accept nothing from the Gentiles. They wouldn't take any financial support from the people they were trying to reach. Light has no part in darkness. None. It's contradictory for God's people to seek financial support from the very pagans they are seeking to convert. Beyond that, to solicit financial support from the very people you are trying to reach with the life-changing message of the gospel would be to open you up to the charge that you're only in it for people's money. How often have we heard about preachers? Oh, they're just in it for the money, right? And unfortunately, there's some truth to that. You turn on the television and you watch a number of those yo-hos that are up there, and there's no question about it what they're in for. It's all about the money. And it brings discredit upon the name of Christ. So these early missionaries, they laid down a principle. And in beloved, it's a principle we follow even to this day. God supports the proclamation of His gospel through the generosity of His people, not through fundraising efforts among the pagans. Amen? We want to make Christ known. We are, we are here to diligently pursue Christ and what? Courageously proclaim Him. If we want to make Christ courageously known, both here in Upland and throughout the United States and to the remotest part of the earth, it is incumbent upon us to finance that. It, it starts right here. And in fact, it doesn't go beyond here. It is our obligation to do that. We ought to support such men. We ought to support such men. John says there's a there's a moral obligation here. Actually, in the Greek, the we is in the emphatic position. It is first in the sentence. We, therefore, ought to support such men, John says. He's emphasizing the fact that it that the obligation lies right here among us, right among the people of God. We ought to, he says, present tense, meaning there's an ongoing, standing obligation to do this. This is part of what it means to be a child of God. Running the risk of meddling here. When that plate is passed, this is your obligation to put something in it. It's an obligation you have by virtue of your attachment to Jesus Christ. And his work of the worldwide propagation of the gospel. It is your obligation to put something in. It is also your privilege to put something in. And if the grace of God has touched your heart, it ought to be your desire to put something in. Notice how, by the way, uh, verse 8, John sort of broadens this. Therefore, we ought to, that is... We have a moral obligation. There's an imperative here to support such men. Do you see that? Such men? It's an indefinite statement. He's broadening it out here. What he's he's saying is that he's not just designating certain individuals. Remember, he's writing to Gaius. He's not just saying, hey, Gaius, you you know, there's an obligation here to report James and and, uh, Charlie and, you know, whatever, these three, four, five guys that are coming. Such men, that is, men that are like them. It's very, very indefinite, very broad. It just kind of opens it up and makes a principle out of it. There is an obligation here to support such men. That is, 
Those that are proclaiming the gospel, those that have made great sacrifice in order to be able to proclaim the gospel, those that have gone out for the sake of the name, verse 7. Such men as this we ought to support. John's creating a a principle here, a principle of, of missionary support for Christian churches. Listen to the words of John Stott from his commentary reflecting on this verse. He says, and I quote, An important principle lies buried here. Namely, that Christians should finance Christian enterprises which the world will not or should not be asked to support. Indeed, Christians have an obligation to do so. There are many good causes which Christians may support. We all know about them, right? We get the phone calls all the time. Will you give to this? Will you give to that? And there are many, many good causes out there. No question. And as a Christian, you may decide to support them. Back to Stott. But they must support their brethren to whom the world should not be asked to contribute. They must must. We must practice Christian hospitality because it's necessary. It is absolutely necessary. It is necessary for the ones that go out and it is necessary for the ones who remain. Third, we must practice Christian hospitality because it's participatory. I love this one. It is participatory. Just the last clause here in verse 8. You see it? We ought to support such men. Why? That we may be fellow workers with the truth. It's participatory. When we provide materially for God's preachers, His missionaries, we actually partner with them in their ministry. Now that's cool. Not everybody can go. Not everybody has been called of God to go. Not everyone is gifted by God to go. But there are certain ones called and gifted and sent out by God. But what about the rest? Do we have no part in this? According to John, we do. We do. Every one of us have a part. We we participate together with them in the truth. Over in 2 John, verse 11 Those who give a greeting to the false teachers participate in their evil deeds. We're not to participate in the evil deeds. That is, we're not to give solace and comfort to those who are false teachers. But we are to provide for those who preach the truth. And by doing that, we participate. It's participatory either way, either in evil or in good. That's the principle. When we get involved financially, and that's what he's talking about here. There's no way around this. When we get involved financially with genuine Christian missionary enterprise, we are sharing in the proclamation of the truth. We become co-laborers with them. We become partners with them in the truth. Now, this idea of sharing, sharing in the truth of their ministry partnering with them in ministry, it implies that we have a responsibility as a church. We have a responsibility and an accountability, I would say, to God for the quality of the ministry that is being done by the missionaries we financially support. Let me say that again. I think there is a principle that is implicit here that comes from the fact that John says we are fellow workers with them. That when we financially support someone, we are participating with them in their ministry. Therefore, we have a responsibility and an accountability to God for the quality of the ministry that they're doing. We're their partners. We can't just send a check and say, oh, I don't know what they do with it. That's not my responsibility. I I just send the money. Whatever they do, that's between them and God. No, it's not between them and God. You're part of it. There's a responsibility for you to know what they're doing with it. 
Is the quality of the ministry they're doing the quality of the ministry that we would want them to do if they were right here? What do they do with their time? It's a good question. Well, how do we know? I mean, we get letters. We get letters, but is anyone who has been a serious reader of missionary letters, they don't tell much. There's really only one way to know. It's to visit. It's to visit. It's to go to the field and walk beside them in their ministry. To, to partner with them. To, to be there and to, and to see what they're doing and the fruit of their ministry and so forth. Why do we send elders overseas? I mean, wouldn't the money that, that is spent to, to fly a couple of elders overseas to spend you know, a week or ten days with a missionary, wouldn't it be better spent just giving it to some more missionaries? No, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be better spent at all. Because we have an obligation to, to those that whom we are in partnership with that we know what they're doing with that which has been entrusted to them. Those of us who remain behind, we've got people looking over our shoulders, coming alongside us, evaluating the quality of the ministry, and it should be that way. Those who are overseas need it as well. It's for their benefit. It's for their benefit. So we need to periodically visit them. All right. So how do we make personal application of all of this? Well, I've, suggest, I've got some, some ideas here. Let me suggest them to you. I'll just kind of go through them quickly. If you've got any room, you can jot down the one that strikes you most. Here's some thoughts that come to me as I work through this passage. Number one, hospitality requires more sacrifice than simply donating money. True Christian hospitality requires greater sacrifice than simply donating money. Writing a check is the easy thing. It's like the bare minimum. Practicing true Christian hospitality requires an investment of your time. Time. And that's the most precious commodity every single one of us have. Time. It requires an investment of your privacy. To bring someone into your home is to give up a measure of your privacy. There's no way around it. That's costly. It also represents giving up control over your belongings. They use your stuff. I mean, we just kind of want to put it down at that level. And nobody uses your stuff the way you'd like your stuff used. You know what I'm saying? But you come to realize that Christian love is way more important than stuff. It's all God's stuff anyway, right? Plus it's going to burn. The sooner the better, I say. Secondly, Christian hospitality begins with a love for the truth. Don't ever disconnect it. It begins with a love for the truth. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I won't turn you there, but verse 5, Paul is commending the churches of Macedonia for their giving, their generous giving out of the midst of their poverty. And he makes an important point there. He says, first they gave themselves to God. And then they gave generously. Until you give yourself to God, you will never give generously. Because it requires a change of heart. Third, Christian hospitality doesn't come naturally, but is learned incrementally. It does not come naturally, but it is learned incrementally. What do I mean by that? I mean, you've got to start somewhere. So you start small somewhere and you begin to build upon that. And as God continues to work in your heart and to change your affections and to, and to bring incredible reward that comes from it, then it will become more and more a, a part of who you really are. But it begins incrementally. So find something small. I'll suggest a few things here in a minute. And just start working on them. Fourth, Christian hospitality is beneficial to the spiritual growth of our families. It is very beneficial to the spiritual growth of our families. How? It teaches generosity. It is one thing to talk about being generous. It is another thing to be generous. It's easy to talk. Talk is cheap, right? But action is difficult. 
And so it teaches us what it means to be generous when we have people into our home and they're using our stuff and taking up our time and and our resources. So it teaches generosity. It teaches humility. It's beneficial to our family because it humbles us. It humbles us. We can't control it. We all like to control the circumstances, right? I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be generous under my terms, up to my, you know, level of. Oh no, no, no! You don't go any further than this. Get out of my chair, <laughs> right? You can have any seat you want in the house, but that one's mine, <laughs> right? And don't change my TV channel either. <laughs> so it, may, it humbles us. It humbles us. It also gives us a greater view of what God's doing in the world. It makes us visionary. You know, when you have people into your home, particularly people that are, that are from another part of the world, you come to realize that you know, God's really big and He's doing some amazing things all over the place. Most of us, we like to see you know, life through a toilet paper tube, just a real small, narrow you know, thing. But... Give it to it. That's that didn't originate with me, by the way. It's, that's a Pastor Jerryism. For those of you who remember him, it gives you a really wide view of the world. I mean, God's doing some amazing stuff out there. You know, He's doing more in other parts of the world than He's doing here at home. That's for sure. And it's really encouraging to hear about that. You serve a very big God. All right, here we go. Seven practical suggestions. He's got to be quick. Seven practical suggestions to begin a ministry of hospitality. First one, simple. Make a list of people to invite into your home after church. Very simple. Go through the directory. Make a list of people who you don't know. Strangers. Brethren, but strangers to you. And just start with a list. Number two. I told you I'm going to make this practical. Number two, clean your house on Saturday. Okay. Clean your house on Saturday and prepare a meal on Saturday that you can then eat on Sunday afternoon. It's really easy, I've been told. Okay? I'll make sure I add that. I've been told. Is that right? It's very easy, she says. It's important that you own up to these things. You know. Crockpots or something or other. I don't know. So clean the house on Saturday, prepare a meal so you're ready for Sunday. That way you can be spontaneous, too. Collect and file inexpensive recipes. Guys, right? Collect and file inexpensive recipes that you can use. Prepare a, or purchase a guest book. Purchase a guest book for yourself. And have people sign it. You know, it is really cool to go back and look through your guest book to see where people have come from and to see how God has brought people into your life from all over the world. So get yourself a guest book. Be interested in people's lives and prepare some questions to draw them out so that you don't sit around looking at each other. Very boring, okay? So don't expect them to be great conversationalists. It's up to you and the extension of hospitality to take an interest in them, to ask them some leading questions, questions that can't be answered with a grunt, okay, to sort of draw them out. Some people it's harder than others, believe me. Here's one for those of you that God has prospered. Set aside a prophet's room. A prophet's room. Second Kings 4.10 speaks of a little prophet's room. It's a place set aside for Elisha, right? Whenever he was in the area, he would come. He would have a place to stay. Set aside. If perhaps you've, God has taken you to a stage in life where you have an extra bedroom in your home. Set it aside for traveling missionaries, and I'll add this one, or needy college students. Okay? A bed, a chair, a lamp, some basic stuff where you can take someone in. Don't put them in the kids' room, you know, on the third bunk bed with all those wild Indians. Okay? That's not restful. Finally, remember you're not there to entertain. I'll say it again. You are not there to entertain. 
You are there to practice hospitality. Invite them to be guests participating in your ministry. Your whole family life. Just weave them right into it. These are just some simple ways. There's many more. Fortunately, I'm going to get another bite at the apple because when we get to Romans 12, it talks about practicing hospitality. So I'll come back to this again. But it's near and dear to my heart. Maybe this morning you, uh, you're here for the first time listening to this talk about Christian hospitality and you don't understand it all. I mean, what would motivate somebody to extend themselves in such a way? Particularly to strangers. Why? The answer is, is because God has changed our heart. God has done something amazing within us. He's invaded. By the way, he didn't ask permission. He just came. He just came to us through his word. Convicted us of our sin of our separation from Him, of the fact that we've been living for ourselves, for our own glory and not His. He's convinced us through His Word that there is judgment to come. And that no one is righteous. None can stand in the judgment naked. That we need a set of clothes. We need something to enable us to stand in the judgment. And it can't come from us because everything we have and everything we touch is defiled by our own sin. God sent His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners. He was crucified, buried, and on the third day He rose from the dead. Forever testifying to any who would, who would have Him that indeed He carried their sin and their guilt to that cross and it was, it was nailed there. It was executed there. And that by faith, if we will embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting on Him and Him alone for our salvation, if we will call out to Him to save us, then the Bible says we will be robed, as it were, with His righteousness, no longer naked before the judgment, but covered in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. That gift of eternal life is available to anyone here this morning. Anyone here who will call out to Him. For all who will call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. I invite you to call out to Him if you have not. You can call out to Him right here where you are right now in your seat. After we finish here, I'll be down front. If there are questions you want to ask, things you're not quite sure of, I'd be happy to talk with you. It would be my joy and my privilege to open the Bible with you and to show you absolutely, without a doubt, how you can be made right with the Creator of the universe. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, the topic of hospitality is such a neglected and needful topic in the church today. Because, our Father, we have gotten away from this expression of biblical love. And so we ask, Lord, that your word would work in our hearts, we who know you by faith. For, our Father, the fact that we, are, that we are saved, that we are rightly related to you through Jesus Christ, does not make us perfect, as you so absolutely well know. We are not a perfect people. Our Father, we are a forgiven people. We have repented and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and we live a repenting lifestyle. That is, when confronted, our Father, we are continually in the process of turning from sin and turning to Christ. And by empowerment of your Spirit who resides within, we can live a life that is pleasing to you. And so for all of us, Father, the message we have this morning is something we need to hear. Because it confronts us right where we're at. That we're selfish. And that selfishness needs to change. So Lord, we pray that You would work in us and that You would empower us to change. We pray, our Father, the same power that is 
available to those who do not even know Christ, the power that will save them. That is the same power of the cross that will sanctify us. The gospel is not just for them. It is for us. It is for all. And so, Lord God, please, please work in our hearts. Humble us. Grant us that desire to be obedient to the word. Grant us faith to believe. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.